In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the True Life Podcast, the psychedelic roundtable here on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. I hope everybody is doing well and looking forward to something and has somebody to love. We are here with the one and only Mr. Wizard. We are here with the additional one and only, the beekeeper, the man, the myth, the legend, Paula Powell from Maui. And we're going to get into it today, guys. How's it going? Another day in paradise here, yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, before we started the show, we were talking a little bit about patterns in life. And when I think about patterns, you know, when I really, the first time I really thought about patterns was when I was a young kid playing Pac-Man and I used to go down to the arcade and like, you know, I'd watch all the older kids play. And then like the kids that were really good could beat like three or four boards. And then you, you know, you play enough quarters where you, you make that cool little, that cool little, slug with fishing wire on it and you would put it down the machine and like get all the tokens on there. But, uh, you know, you, you start realizing in Pac-Man that there's a pattern that you can do where none of the ghosts will eat you. And like, that was the first realization and the first time I really heard a pattern, you know, you fast forward 40 years and you can look back on your life and see patterns in life, patterns in language, patterns in behavior. And it begins, you begin to understand that our lives, the things we think, our relationships, can be a series of repeating patterns. What do you think about that? Well, I would say, you know, this thing between our ears, right, is just a giant pattern recognition machine, if you think about it. You know, it's always, it, it can't focus on everything. So it's taking samples of stuff and looking for the patterns inside of those, inside of that sensory data. And then if it's, you know, if it's something like, when something crosses your peripheral vision that it doesn't recognize, you get that little bit of an alertness. You get that start because that pattern doesn't fit in with the pattern that the room is supposed to be, right? There wasn't supposed to be anybody over there. 
So I think we're kind of, we're built inherently to recognize patterns, you know, just from kind of the, the mechanistic, what it is to be a human. Yeah, I think so too. Paul, you being someone who, who works with queen bees, do you see different patterns in the way that those hives, the broods of those hides, the queens of those hides, are there recognizable patterns in what you're doing? Oh, yeah. In those yeah. Yeah. I mean, queens usually lay in a spiral pattern. You know, so they'll start in the middle of, of the brood section and they'll spiral out and lay eggs in a spiral pattern. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, like you talk about like, geometry in a beehive it's like mm. it's all over the place um that it's it's definitely a pattern full world um you know when it comes to honeybees well and it's not just honeybees it's all nature right you know that's where we start to get into the things like the golden ratio fibonacci sequences you know the ancient greek phi um you know that's kind of how we we've we've kind of related these patterns throughout you know our symbology our language you know even the ancient architecture you look at you know the the dimensions of the of the pyramid and it seems to be a relative model for not just the earth but the earth's relationships to the solar system i mean when you start to talk the calculations so i you know it's interesting i think patterns kind of underlie just about everything. I don't think I don't think you could make an example that didn't have some sort of pattern that went into it. You know, there seems like a weird space where, you know, all of us have these <clears throat> we all have these different patterns that we recognize. And you could even say we're pattern recognizing machines. But on some level, we're always looking for something unique. Like we we tend to value things that are different. Isn't that kind of like a dichotomy between us living in patterns, but then looking for something unique? I think that's kind of almost like a, a false paradox. Mm. It, it's kind of similar, you know, like uh, the way our olfactory senses work is we don't actually smell smells. We smell the changes in smells. Mm. Uh, and so I think I think a lot of it is, you know, where we basically have this this operating system, this program that's running. We can tweak it, you know, all sorts of different ways from different inputs, how we sleep, how we exercise, the things we put in our body, all of our experiences, etc. But in that in that set of defined patterns, our brain and our system is always looking for things that don't fit in. There. And I think this, you know, this kind of gets into neuroscience and you get into the reward system of the brain and, and why we do the things we do and then how it gets reinforced. And so, like, for instance, there's an interesting, um, some interesting studies about uh, ultradian cycles, which are like 90 minute cycles in your day. And they found that if you go and work out really intensely for that 90 minute cycle and then you just rest and do nothing, just kind of almost sleep, but just kind of like a meditative rest, your mind plays back in reverse the last hour and a half. And it's looking for what you you know, felt good about what you might have felt was an error, and it's encoding those into how you're going to perform next time. How that that's a beautiful example. Can you explain how we can use that in our life? Like, can you give me an example of how to put that in there? Sure. So, I mean, it's you know, if you're if you're out for a run, because I have a lot of running experience, right. um, and you know, you're finding yourself like gassing out or whatnot, you're or you take a bad step. 
you're actually what's going to happen is if you do this right your your mind is going to recognize that what that bad step was associate the pain with it and then create pathways if they're there for you know because you have uh, different experiences of not taking that bad step and it's going to reinforce all of that behavior so not just not just the not taking the bad step but the cascade of events that leads up to it and that's kind of that encoding process and so uh, presumably that you know your your body becomes more prepared for the next workout Correct. And then so when it encounters that again, it's less likely to make the same mistake. Well, that's pretty interesting. It, now, obviously, this is this is an equation, right? This is this is right. a, there's variables in it. So that's not the only thing that's in play. I mean, if you're drunk, you're going to override all of that and you're probably going to stumble and hurt yourself anyway. Uh, that's why, you know, drunk people are still drunk people. There's there's a, there's variables in the equation, but the underlying kind of uh, you know, forward motion of what we do to kind of move throughout day to day and, and plan and associate and what to focus on and what not to focus on is through that process, at least as far as I, I have taken in with the research. So is it is it more effective for vigorous types of activities? Um, it, it's actually not. It, it can be, you know, well, I guess it could be mentally vigorous. It could be physically vigorous. It could just be um, whatever you're doing. It could be, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be vigorous. It could be also like memorizing guitar chords and then, you know, anything like that, any, any sort of thing that's going to involve any sort of, any sort of neuro circuits. Well, I wonder what if it's, yeah, go ahead, George. What about like relationships? Like it seems it works in the opposite way with relationships. Like it's not recording the best thing. Like cause so I know some people that just constantly make the same mistake over and over in relationships. Well, you know, so this starts to get it. So that's the underlying like the physical mechanisms. Mm. And then we have and then we have these top down mechanisms of control through like our neocortex and all these other things where, you know, that's where our emotions come into play. Mm. And, you know, that and that gets processed into this equation. And, you know, we all know emotions play a pretty strong role in how we feel about a situation, how we react to a situation. Um, so in an unhealthy relationship, I think you would see a lot. You wouldn't see a lot of that. But I think in a healthy relationship, if you were to step back, you would be able to pull out and be like, oh, my partner doesn't like when I do this. And so I haven't done this and I didn't make a big effort out of it, but it was just something that naturally came to me because my emotional state was, I don't want to screw over my partner. I'm not emotionally hurt about this. So let's change my behavior. And those things can be, you know, very much subconscious. Interesting. Wow. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder what the effect would be like if you, if you like couple, you know, psychedelics with, you know, some sort of vigorous activity, whether it's mental or physical. And then if it was possible for, you know, like the 90 minute cool down period and how your brain would process all of that. Well, because we're, we're actually unlocking and using and accessing different parts of our brain that, you know, that we're not doing at least, you know, consciously, you know, while we're, you know, like lifting weights or going for a run or, you know, Doing right. Mathematical so, well, so, you know, those are all kind of correlated a little bit. So like lifting weights is a great example for this. You know, we all know you lift heavier weights, you get bigger muscles. There's that resistance training in there, right? 
And so when it, it's the same idea, you're kind of programming these neural pathways, you're working them out, you're flexing them. And so under a psychedelic experience, when you are, you have all these novel pathways and connections between different parts of the brain, I think when we, you know, especially if you do this at a repetitive rate, you reinforce those neural pathways. And mm -hmm. in that reinforcement, you know, all sorts of different things could be potentially possible. Now, I don't think people are going to start flying anytime soon um, because, you know, there's still the laws of physics that we deem the laws of physics. But I think there's uh, a lot to be said for human potential. So you think that those pathways become more available to us? Um, the more you use them, just like the more the more you lift weights, the, the easier it is to lift weight. Right. But without the use of psychedelics, like they become sure. more available. Yeah, absolutely. Because you have to figure it's some of these novel connections and the rearrangement of connections in the brain, some of them are going to be very ephemeral. They're going to just dissipate. Um, others, you know, it, as we know, if we reflect on these experiences, you still have a a touch of that you, you know there's still something there mm -hmm. you can you can you can access it a bit and the more you you know just like flexing a muscle the more you work out that muscle that that neuroscience muscle the more ability you have to access and use that firing of bioelectricity biomechanics so any of you guys know anybody who's doing any sort of research work on this me too I am this guy. <laughs> I have, I, I have like a journal and I, like I'm, I'm far from a scientist, although I play one on my podcast at times to time, but I, I, here's, here's the way that, that I see it in my mind. Everybody's gone skiing before. And if you've gone skiing, maybe you've been lucky enough to get fresh tracks. Like you go up on the, on the chairlift the first thing in the morning and you're the first person to cut a groove into the snow. That's kind of the same way the connections are being made. The first time you go down the snow, you know what? It's kind of, you're kind of oh, fishtailing a little bit because there's no grooves. But by midday, that trail that someone over. cut, yeah, it's all iced over and it's the water's flowing down. You can see the mud. It's the same way your thoughts move through your brain. And I think the psychedelics allow you to get sort of like a fresh tracks for it. And I want to add to that. Like, That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I believe that that it can be even more enhanced. I think that the, the, uh, if you're going to use psychedelics in any sort of human optimization program, that you would best be served by stacking it with human growth hormone and for guys' testosterone. Because I think that, that, also, I think that those two work in conjunction with one another. It would be like going down fresh tracks with you in a snowmobile behind you or in front of you maybe. And so I, I've taken a journal and – I. I've, I feel that during the height of a psychedelic experience, you are beginning to, you have this overwhelming sensation of a height of awareness. And that, in my opinion, is the new trails being cut. Hey, whoa, I'm having this new thought or I'm having this new emotion about this thing. That's a new connection being made in real time. And then when you're through your trip, you come down on this, on this um, psychological you know, bent when you start thinking about things you're like, oh, I wonder why that is that you strengthening that passageway. And tomorrow it may not be as deep tomorrow. It may have scabbed over in a way, but it's still there. Or if you want another metaphor, it's like going hiking for the first time and taking ribbons with you and making your own trail. You got to take the ribbons the first few times so you can mark it. But you know, in a month or two months, if it's a good trail and you've gotten access to it pretty soon, you don't need those ribbons because you can just follow the footpath. Right. No, that's a wonderful analogy. 
well said. I think Thank you. the fresh tracks and powder is beautiful is a beautiful way to look at it because that's very much what's happening. Uh, and and then you know to extend that a little bit more, uh, now you go back two days later, right? So now I've had two days from my trip. Now I go back two days later. There's some of those pathways still in there, but if all of a sudden it snowed again. Right. If all of a sudden I've been distracted from what I, you know, that reflection period of that psychedelic experience and I'm just back on life and it's slowed again. Yeah, you can still see a little bit of the track, but, you know, it's kind of been glossed over. But if you were to go up every single day and rewrite that same track, that's your track. Just like going up and, and planning the hiking, eventually you get that trail that's just a defined trail through the woods. This is exactly why this I think that this is the 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 um power behind the idea of people coaching or people being someone you go to to learn and i know, I know we don't all agree or maybe we do agree that coaching is 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 something but someone who has experience in something can at least point people in the right direction hey keep your nose up hey lean back a little bit you know you can't tell them which trail to take but you can instruct them on some of the obstacles that may be in their way and i think that you know, Paul and I were talking about this last night, Ben. The idea of coaching, the idea of having someone there, I, I'm not sure I can understand why you would need somebody more than once as like a coach or something like that. What do you think? Hmm. I think that really depends on the person receiving the coaching and what they're, you know, because I, I, I would argue you don't need a coach if you're willing to just do it go full bore you're going to make a lot of mistakes you might even hurt yourself but as long as you're willing to commit to that you don't necessarily need a coach but i don't think everybody has the time or necessarily the emotional availability to do that for themselves i mean a lot of people are locked up in so many different things and so i think that's where you know the idea of a coach the idea of a shaman in, in, in older days i think that's where they kind of come into play is they're kind of the facilitator, the the bridge between those two worlds. It's like and going to. I'm sorry. The ferryman. Yeah, the ferryman. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. It's like going to Squaw Valley. I'm going to run the bunny hill twice, and then I'm going to get somebody to teach me how to go down the big hill. Instead of just going up to the diamond and being like, "I'm going to go," I'm probably going to crash, but I'm going to go. Right, and but it, it, you know, it's kind of the same idea as throwing a kid in the water. Yeah, they're going to drown, but they're going to learn in drowning that I, they don't want to drown. And so how do I not drown? I start to flail and I get up and I learn how to swim. You know, I think and we'll probably we could probably find an exceptional amount of examples throughout, you know, kids and raising and all of this stuff. But I think there is I think there is a a need for for coaching in the world uh, because not everybody has all the answers all the time, even if you have the knowledge sometimes yeah. your emotional state can take you out of the ability to be able to recognize that you know just look at like shock for instance right you know when people go into shock that it shuts off there is no rationality anymore paul it, has a really good paul paul had a really good idea for a retreat paul, <laughs> can you share that idea <laughs> yeah uh, you know I'm, I'm not a retreat type of person mm -hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really believe in retreats. Um, I'm not. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I hear about people's experience with retreats, right? And, um, you know, I mean, Ken shared, uh, Kev shared one when he was, you know, a few weeks ago on here about, you know, like sitting in a tent doing 
uh, and just like the guy breathing on him, you know, and, and like all you can think is like, it's freaking hot in here and, and I need to get the hell out of here, you know, type of situation. And to me, it's like, I, I talk to people who go on retreats and that's kind of typical for like, it doesn't matter like what they're doing. There's like, seems to be some sort of level of like somebody coming at you with like what you need to be doing or you know some level of uncomfort you know so that you can accomplish this goal that you you know you set out to do while you're on this retreat and so you know my thought my idea with the tree was like you know come to me give me five hundred dollars i'll kick you in the balls you, you go home and you know that we save a lot of time you know what for some people that might be surprisingly effective <laughs> But, we were talking about it last night a little bit. You know. I, I, I agree. You know, I've never been a retreat guy. I, you know, I've never been, um, you know, it, it was, it, and I would even go even further than that. I remember showing up to high school for the first time and all the incoming freshmen knew the song of the high school. And I was like, what is this? Did you all go to summer camp to learn this shit? Like, what are we doing here? Like, I just showed up like five minutes ago. Everybody's <laughs> singing it. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And I, I've always had that same kind of response to everything. It's like, you know, I, I've never been a fan. You know, I don't, I, you know, I don't in, indulge in fandom. I, it, just, it was never my thing. So, but at the same time, I think a lot of those retreats are just money grabs. And I think if, I think if we're, if we're re really being honest with the situation, what's happening, I'd say 99% of them, 99.9% of them are probably money grabs. I think whenever you're taking like this idea that we could have this group experience that's supposed to be this very personalized, reflective, I'm looking in my own personal mirror, uh, you know, kind of experience that psychedelics gives, and then you thrust a group into it. I don't know that that's always a great idea. In fact, I would argue it's probably not a great idea most of the time. Now, will people get some benefit from it? I mean, if you've never had, if you've never gone to camp and been around people and had that camaraderie and, and then you have the psychedelic experience, you're probably going to love the hell out of it. Why wouldn't you, right? I mean, you're being accepted in a, in a, in a sense by, by peers, by other humans, and that always feels good. So I think that's kind of the allure. And, yeah. then, you have, and then you have these celebrities who then, you know, oh, it changed my life. And and it gets conflated, for sure. Yeah, and I'm a big. I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, go ahead, George. I'm good. I'm a I'm a big fan of language, and it's so interesting to me how sometimes the writing is on the wall. Like when you think of history, you think of his story. Oh, it's some stories that people made up. When I think of people going on a retreat, I think of the word retreat. Like where is the strength in retreating like retreating means you're running away retreating is something that is not something that you should strive to do you shouldn't strive to retreat retreat is something you do when you don't have any other things that you can do you're going to retreat right? we're going to run away so there's so another you... etymology to that too though okay because you have re as a root meaning to repeat oh, and then you have okay. treat as in like maybe treating a wound but then you could also even have treat as in treating oneself, right? And so I think, to your point, I think the language is very important. Words are important. I think, you know, depending on who is guiding the people down that path will determine very much what sort of retreat they're experiencing. 
But in, a, in I would push back on that and say, if you're going to retreat someone, that means the first treatment didn't work. So the right. treatment does you're retreating someone with something that didn't work. Right. Yeah, right. And, well, you know, <laughs> but here's the but here's the thing. Sometimes you uh, need to right. like when you, for instance, like in, uh, if we're taking antibiotic or you're address, dressing the wound, right? You right. redress the wound because you don't want it to get infected because it's not healed yet. So, uh, you know, I think you could you could wordplay yourself, you know, know. in a lot of different ways into this, I think. But I don't. But at the same time, I don't really think retreat ever really. um, It doesn't really jump over the bridge to that personal experience. Yeah, it could be a better explanation. I I think that maybe a. uh a men's group or something is a little more masculinity to it or, you know, some sort of the Elks the, club. <laughs> <laughs> How about the mystery schools? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You heard this new Achilles is going around. Anybody read it? What's that? <laughs> okay. 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 Ben, I'm going to share a story with you and you okay. tell me what you think. Okay. All right. I got some cool friends. You guys are obviously some of them. And just like you guys, these are, these gentlemen like to read. And so every now and then I'll stop by their house and we'll talk about different books. And uh, a f- about a month ago, I stopped by these guys' house and they go, oh, George, how's it going? You know, little cocktail talk, chit chat. Hey, have you, have you uh, George, you've read like the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Homeric Verses. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love those, man. I, I really enjoy it. I'm a big Joseph Campbell fan, so I'm a fan of myth. And my friend comes out and he's got this book and he goes, George... I got this book for you. You're going to love it. I go, really? He goes, yeah. It's called Achilles. You know that story, right? I go, yeah. Fantastic. And he goes, well, this one's a little different. I'm like, really? How? He's like, well, in this book, Achilles is a homosexual. And he has a lot of torrid romance affairs with Agamemnon. Like, you know, it's just really gritty. Okay. And I'm like. And I'm like so it's like Greek mythology, mythology fan fiction. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, I kind of like the original version, you know, but I I don't, I got to be honest with you, I'm probably not going to read that. Mm -hmm. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, you know, I I got a lot of other stuff I can read. And to be honest, like, I I just, that doesn't, it's not something that appeals to me. I'm not saying it's bad, but, you know, it doesn't appeal to me. And he's like, well, have you seen Brokeback Mountain? And I'm like, nope, (laughs) I haven't seen that. And he's, and then he hits this. He goes, "Do you think that maybe it's because you're homophobic?" Yeah, I saw that one coming, <laughs> dude. Yeah. And I was like, uh, "It also, I was so offended in some ways, you know." And well, I was you should like, be, Man. you should be a little offended, <laughs> yeah. uh, because you know, yeah, you should be a little offended. <laughs> yeah, and so you know, I, I thought about. He goes, "Why don't you just take the book and and just just give it a read?" And you know, I'm out, and like his his wife was up there, and she's like, "Oh, don't, just leave George alone." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's fine. thinking like, leave me alone, dude." But I take the book because I'm a nice guy, and, and I, I take it and I put it in my truck, and I, I uh, in my work truck, and I just set it on the back the back shelf there, and I kind of forget about it. But as I'm just driving, thinking about all this stuff, and I'm like, "Man, that's so crazy!" Like I'm totally not that way. In fact, what you know? So I, I just thought about it for a while, and then. A couple, another, another week goes by and I went back to their house and he goes, he comes out. Hey, George, did you read that book? Mm. And I go, you know what? I did not read it. As a matter of fact, I have it right here, but I did think about what you told me. Mm. And the more that I thought about what you told me and how you told me, I realized what you were telling me. 
And so I would like to give this book back to you and tell you that I just want to be your friend, that I'm not, I'm not like that. <laughs> you know, and it was like, he just looked at me like, hmm, well played. But I just, I, dude, I, that was on my mind. Like, I, I don't know why, like that. It, it was a funny story to me, you know? Yeah, it is a funny story. And, you know, it, 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 and it's wild because all of a sudden this day and age, um, you know, back when I was growing up, you didn't, you didn't put, you know, you didn't talk about religion, politics, you know, and all these things. Yeah. You didn't put your beliefs on somebody else, essentially, is what it came down to. And that wasn't the kind of respectful thing to do in conversation. But now it's if you don't hold my belief, there must be something wrong with you. And that's a that's a concurrent part of conversation, especially the conversations that are kind of dictating policy, which is very scary, um, you know, but it, it's a wild thing. And you're not homophobic for not wanting to watch Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. appeal to you. You know, right. it, it's one of right. it, it has nothing to do with the the, you know, the homoeroticism. It has nothing to do with the sexuality. It was just as a whole. It didn't appeal to you. Um, you know, and I went, I kind of went through this when I, in my travels um, and to the point where I actually moved in with some gay guys because they were doing a web design business and they needed another web designer. And, you know, it was a good, sweet kind of deal. And so I was like, you know what? I'm not homophobic. I'm just going to go see how this is. You know, I'm, and then I, from a scientist perspective, I get a view of something that, you know, I'm living with these guys. Right. And you know, I've lived with a lot of women, <laughs> but I'll tell you, uh, you know, the passive aggressive nature in that house was, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I mean, it was, it was eventually, it was like, you know, I would show up to the sink and there's notes left on the pots. It's like, this is still dirty. And I'm like, oh, oh, what the fuck? I'm like, oh man, oh shit. It was, it was, it was a, it was a catastrophe eventually. And I was, you know, we parted ways as friends, but I, you know, after about a month of living there, I realized, wow, that's just an entirely different lifestyle. That just isn't me. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting concept. To think about, I uh, yeah, it's, it's just weird how, how things, how different people have different ways of trying to validate how they feel by getting other people to do things. You know what I mean? In some ways, I think that that's people are trying to say, hey, I've done these things. Why don't you do them? Well, that's that's what you use when you don't have the intellectual argument, when you don't mm. have the evidence, when you don't have the knowledge to support whatever your philosophical foundation is on. It's you have to try this because I tried it and then you'll then you'll know what I you know what I mean. And, you know, that's not how you really sell somebody. A, but B, you know, that's where that's where a lot of this is. A lot of people have are so wishy-washy on their philosophical foundations. We're we're morally bankrupt from many different mm. perspectives. You know, ethics, who knows what ethics is anymore? You'll get 20 definitions from 20 different professors these days. You know, the Hippocratic Oath. What's that now? Right. You know, these are these are all of these things are, you know, we've we've gone into the realms of absurdity and all of that, it seems. You know, you know, something, Ben, something that you said about people having conversations about, you know, religion and politics and money and stuff like that. And they weren't really like, you know, like those are conversations that people frowned upon mm -hmm. and, and in a lot of ways still do frown upon amongst like, you know, friends or coworkers or whatever. Right. I don't know. If, I, I would have to disagree. I don't. I don't think that the intent of those, of like telling people these aren't things that we talk about amongst friends. 
is because of, you know, offending somebody. Well, you know, putting your belief system onto somebody else. I think it's, I think it has everything to do with um, the fact that most people aren't um, equipped to have those types of conversations, you know, conversations that, you know, have, you know, a, a higher probability of becoming emotional. I, I don't think you're wrong at all. But I would say because of that, then people are less likely to want to have those conversations because there's kind of the underlying knowledge that that's where it's going to end up. Right. In some and, sort of and, emotional state. Right. Yeah. And that's a shame. I mean, don't you think like, you know, we should be better equipping people in this country, especially like young people 100%. to be able to have conversations like that, you know, where, you know, there's a chance that they be, can become emotional. But how do you, you know what I mean? How do you, um, how do you, you know, spot that it's becoming emotional? How do you understand like when the, when the conversation is going off the rails? You know, I think to me, that's like, that's, that's the difference between like, you know, back in the day, these conversations were for gentlemen, right? Right. Like th this was for gentlemanly, this was gentlemanly conversation. And I don't think it was mostly because people ha would have disagreements that, you know, that were irreconcilable. I think it's because they understood, like when we talk about debate, when we talk about, you know, having proper discussions with people, that their educational background armed them, equipped them to be able to have these conversations in a manner that kept, you know, um, you know, emotion out of it. Whereas like nowadays, there's so many people that just aren't able to even have the most basic conversations, you know, like left Twix and right Twix without getting emotional, <laughs> you know, because they don't, they don't, you don't need them at the same time. What? Yeah. Right. You don't need them at the same time, <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, yes. it's like, you know, the, the, you know, society has always said this, like my parents said this to me when I was a kid, like, Oh, it's stuff you don't talk about. And it's like, as I got older, I was like, well, why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, no reason why we can't have these discussions. If everybody learns how to have a proper discussion. Right. You know, Hence, but, well, and, and, you know, hence our discussions, right? If you look at the main topics of what we've talked about, we've pretty much broach all those every single episode. And and we managed to do it without berating each other and being dicks. Um, and, I, you know, so it's, it's leading by example at some point. But, you know, I think, you know, one of the points you made in there is that, you know, it was reserved for people who had the intellectual and emotional capacity to talk about these. And I think a lot of that reason was because you would actually get people who would be so emotionally distraught that it would ruin relationships. It would cause feuds. It would cause murders, it, you know, especially when you have, you know, people who are very much attached to these ideals. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, no, yeah, that's, that's kind of silly, don't you think? People have been yeah. shot through that many times. Crusades have been war waged over this. You know, this is this is something that we ha we have a lot of history of killing each other over when we have these sorts of disagreements and aren't able to come to an intellectual table and discuss them. Uh, and you know, to further that point, we've talked a little bit about it before. The average education level in the United States is sixth grade. Twenty percent of people, eighteen percent of people, are potentially illiterate in this country. That does yeah. not give that does not breed a great conversation ground typically and that's by design like that that was you know if you look oh, back it at, well, yeah well it, it was, was. well it was here's what you look here's what i know if you look back to the prussian school model that was brought in by like john dewey and all this stuff 
Look, just look at the way in which schools are taught. This is the Prussian school model. And it, it was said that we don't need to teach kids. Like there was stuff purposely left out. And that was critical thinking. That was this idea to handle conversations. We don't need artists. We don't need poets. We need workers. That's what was decided at the turn of the century where you're going to have people come in. There's going to be a one person that stands in front of the class and they're going to they're going to treat them in a Pavlovian methodology where they stimulus for and appeal to authority. We're not going to teach them this. They're not going to learn through literature because they're not going to read literature. They're not they don't need to know that they need to know how to read to this level. And that's it. We don't want them being there. And if you look at it from that angle, why? It's like this. There are nuances in conversations where people say, look, this is I'm sorry that these particular people are dumb. They're probably going to always be dumb. We know what's best for them. That's a fact. That conversation happens all the time, all the time. But you know what? You don't want those people that are dumb to start asking some questions because that causes problems for you or maybe your kid. That's a huge problem. You know, just start asking questions about voting. Start asking these questions about any sort of critical thing. And the first thing that happens is you're a conspiracy theorist. All of a sudden, there's an ad hominem attack thrown against you by people that are supposed to be intelligent. The very sign, the very emergence of a logical fallacy shows you that there's a huge problem facing us. And when you look at things like no child left behind, like I remember in eighth grade, there was a kid driving himself to school, man. Like this was before No Child Left Behind. My friend Rico, man, he had a smoking hot girlfriend. Dude. I'm like, dude, look at this guy, man. He's like six two, you know. Like there were kids that got left behind, but they became the badass because they stayed in the same grade and got older and older and older until they couldn't, you know. But the the whole idea of these processes is to push people through the program regardless of what they know. And it's not because we care about them like that. If we cared about them, we would do things to make them more educated. But th that's the plan. And I don't you know, you can look back at the literature there. You can look back at books like Tragedy and Hope. You know, you can look back at the work of uh, I think her name is Cheryl El Elzerby. You know, there's all these people that have written. But just look back at John Dewey. You know, it's right in it's in the books. It says, here's what we're doing. Right. I you know, it's a sad thing. I because to your point, you know, it's the critical thinking, it's it's all of these stuff. But, you know, that appeal to authority really became kind of foundational to all of this. And if if you look at what's happening today in the world, you know, it's it's everything's an appeal to authority. You know, there was no we and I think one of the other important things is when you do that, you remove the ability for conflict resolution at the local personal level. Now, all of a sudden, me and Billy get into a fight and Billy punches me. I punch him back. Now the cops have to be called. Now the principal has to get involved. Now the parents have to show up. That wasn't always the case. You know, and most and both kids get expelled these days. You know, that wasn't always the case. Me and Billy would have beat the shit out of each other in 1982. And, you know, we probably would have ended up friends because we're really not all that different. We're hanging out in the same areas. We are talking about the same things. We're having similar experiences. We, you know, one kid just thought he was better ass than the other kid. And without having that conflict resolution between people, this is where I think you end up with a lot of this massive dysphoria in the world. People unable to figure out where they fit because 
they've never they've never found a place to fit. They've never tried to fit. And every time that they would try to fit, it was always circumvented and and you know taken care of. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there's certain decisions that are made for you. You know, you cult like if you look at the culture, it hey, you can be a plumber, you can be a dentist. There's all these defined paths for you, but you didn't really define any of those paths. You know, like they're they're like cookie cutters. Like you can be any of these things. It's it's kind of like this idea that Paul and I were talking about last night, like the illusion of choice. Like you think you have choice, but you don't really. Like you don't really have the opportunities that you think that you do. I'm not saying you can't make something of yourself. You you totally can, but it's it's an ever dwindling set of choices that faces like I, I don't think the kids today have the choices that we had i don't think that we had the freedom that our parents had just look at bankruptcy laws when i was a kid you could declare bankruptcy as many times as you want and start over but they <laughs> they chopped that right out because oh hey that's too many guys on the bottom making it man you know and it's just this idea of consolidation and when you consolidate you're taking away choices the same way that like you know uh Pepsi or Coca-Cola buys up all these startups. Like that's their method to grow. And they no longer make their own products. They just buy the ones that are coming up that could be competition in the future. And when you do that, you buy up the competition before they can become a threat. You're taking away choices. You're taking those right off the table and slapping your label on it and saying, here you go. I agree mostly, but I would say there's also, you know, there's still the freedom of choice. It's just there's a different set of consequences associated to it. Because now if I want to go against that that monolith of, of you know, Pepsi or Coca-Cola, I can still do it. But it's probably going to be detrimental to me uh, at a business level to the point where I might not even be able to make it from a business perspective. Right. Um, there's still the choice to do so. The consequences mm. of that choice have changed, however. And the incentives. And the incentives. And the responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about it. It it kind of takes me down this this same road of of transparency. Like I've been thinking about this for a while. You know, it seems when at least in my silly mind, I I had always thought that this idea of transparency is what we need. We need transparency in government. We need transparency in the monetary system. And it seems like such a beautiful thing to say because on the surface, it seems so true. But the more you dive down that rabbit hole, the more you realize that transparency is just a nice word, a nice way of saying surveillance. And those are transparency surveillance, you know, and they, they're kind of similar there. And it seems like this, I like transparency was the short dress that the hot girl was wearing but she's really a daydream dressed like a she's really a nightmare just like a daydream you know what i mean like it, mm -hmm. it it seems like it's awesome but then you're like wait a minute this is not what i thought it was what do you, is, does that kind of make sense yes well, I guess it depends on like, no 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 i guess it depends on like you know a transparency and you are equating it to you know surveillance like surveillance happening like when something is viewing something else but there are levels of transparency or types of transparency where the information is freely given, right? The, the, the information is being made public in a way so that anybody can view it. 
You know, it's not like, you know, some giant watchdog situation coming down and, and trying to gather information so it can be viewed. Okay, can you tell so, me a time, can you guys think of a time where transparency doesn't slide into surveillance? I guess that's kind of my my, my friction point. So what sure. about like, you know, like transparent, like people aren't being transparent enough. And so like Big Brother's got to come in and yeah. say, like, okay, well, we feel like you're not being transparent enough. And so therefore we're going to watch you and and see what's happening i mean i don't i think that's that's always going to be the case you know because there's always going to be whatever you're you know if it's an entity or business or government or whatever whatever it is that's trying to be transparent hell i mean like even you know your school or you know your, your workplace you know there's always going to be people that aren't satisfied with the level of transparency and then it's about like you know it, it comes down to like little things you know like you know what one person thinks should be made available isn't necessarily what other people are going to feel you know needs to be made available right so then the thing gets drawn you know then someone's going to sue somebody take them to court and then the judge is going to decide whether or not you know like some of these things need to be right. available to people or not you know so usually the problem with like transparency is like yeah i can come out and say hey i'm going to be really transparent but unless you define what it is you're going to be transparent about you know, you're not going to satisfy everybody. There's always going to be somebody out there, you know, that's going to think that, you know, you're not doing a good enough job. Well, I think at some level from the top down, it's an abuse of words. Hmm. Because transparency, if you were to be transparent, there would be no withholding. There would be no side budgets. There would be no black budgets. There would be no things that we don't tell people about because we don't think they can handle it. There would be none of that if there was true transparency. Now, when you get to the true transparency, then you get the pushback of, oh, but then our enemies will take advantage of us. So we can't have true transparency. And that's typically the kind of that 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 dichotomy that happens at kind of a, a larger level in the world. Interestingly, cryptocurrencies really apply to this situation because you have something like we'll start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is pseudo anonymous, anonymous. So if I want to stay anonymous and I work at it, there are ways that I can. However, every single transaction that's ever committed on the Bitcoin network is recorded on a ledger that's available to the public for anybody to go look at. Now, because that exists, there has been born companies that do things called chain analysis. And then they go back and they will, you know, they'll try to connect all of these different accounts to a person type idea. So you have the surveillance mechanism that comes back into the transparency. But then there's other cryptocurrencies that are entirely anonymous. And the only way to break that anonymity is to correlate them to other networks, other purchases, to other, you know, other data sources in order to correlate that information. So I think there's, you know, from a from a technical point, we're working on this kind of in an interesting way, because I think there is a necessity in society for transparency from the upper echelons down. Otherwise, you know, we end up in a situation we're in. I don't get to determine where my tax dollars go. And if I ask, I'm not going to get an answer. But yet bombs are going to be dropped in Yemen. And it doesn't matter if I can directly say that my dollar went to one of those bombs or not. Because I don't have the ability to choose where my dollars go. The assumption is, is that at least in some part, it went to that. Right? So... I mean, you're, you're kind of referencing like, like, you know, transparency within the government. 
type type situation. I mean, where do you draw the line, though? Right? Like, well, see, that's the thing. People's it, personnel it, it, files part of that transparency. Well, see, that's the thing. That's the thing. And then you get and then you get into like rights of privacy, right? Um, and so this is another interesting aspect that, from a technological standpoint, crypto is working. So the idea is is that there's this whole movement of Web three is what they call it, which is kind of a shitty name. Uh, but the idea is, is that you use a cryptocurrency wallet to effectively log into websites. They don't have your information, your address or anything. They just have your cryptocurrency wallet. And that could be an anonymous wallet. And then you can tie all of your medical information to that wallet where the only way to access that is to provide somebody with a key to access that information. So there's there's privacy solutions in the works as well. Right. So, I mean, you know, like, well, you know, what you were saying, George, you know, as, as like, you know, um, transparency eventually being what taken over by, you know, surveillance. Like, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think there's always going to be that kind of element. But um, I think you I, I feel like, you know, like even your own personal life, whether it's your business, your place of work, you know, like this, those things are always going to be limited. You know, not everything should be available to everybody all the time. That's an interesting yeah. statement. What do you think about that statement, George? Not every, not which part of it? Not everything should be, should available, be available all the time. To, yeah. I I think it's inevitable in some ways because if you look at the future of commerce, it is it is transforming from from the the idea of money is changing and i think it's transforming like a the medium of money is now transforming into the medium of attention and in order to monetize that attention you must how can you manage what you don't measure and the the future the blue ocean strategies of the future are all in behavior they're all in consumption of things on the internet. They're in consumption of ideas. It's like almost the ephemeral we're trying to, we're getting further and further abstract. And so I think that that is what you see Google doing. I think that that's what, in, in, order, for, in order for this dream of tech, technocratic takeover, you must quantify everything. You must break it down. And the only way to do that is to, is to drill in to the individual to drill into everything and look at it because you can't manage what you don't measure. And so this idea of transparency is a gateway drug to surveillance because surveillance is the foundation of the next level of commerce. It's surveillance capitalism. If you think about it from that aspect, in order to have this new world of strategy, in order, you know, Paul, you had told me the other night, the best way, capitalism must continue to exploit. It must continue to grow. And we're at a point where it has exploited the resources on the planet. Well, the next possible area to get into is to exploit the areas of the mind, is to exploit the abstract. The same way that the white people told the Indians, we want to buy your land. Now, too, are we coming up with ideas like, I'm going to buy your air. Well, what air could also be airtime. So there's this whole level of abstract mining going on. And it's based on the idea of surveillance because that's the only way to get the information out. Well, I mean, look, we, I mean, 
Ben just told us that the average education level of, of Americans is sixth grade. That's pretty fucking scary. All right. And so like, that makes me think like there's so much information out there. You know, like, what do we need? We need transparency and government at work. So why? Like Ronnie Tang, you know what I mean? The comedian is out there saying, you've got, you got a bunch of D students running around out there, you know, requiring peer-reviewed scientific information, <laughs> you know, in order to, you know, make decisions on their health or whatever it may be in life. And these people out there, these, these students are out there podcasting now since the pandemic, right? And they're like, they're trying to tell people what to think and, and they think they know. And the problem is, is these people aren't smart enough for transparency, you know? Too much information from that for for those types of people aren't good for any of us. See, I would push back on this a little bit. I I think that, and and let me try to equate it to COVID. Like, and I listen. I don't thoroughly understand complexity. You know, I, I don't. I don't fucking know. But it seems to me that the the level of information that is out there, it's the It's 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 not so much transparent. As it is, as it is, uh, what's the opposite of transparent? Like, um, obfuscated. Obfuscated. Yeah. Like, so there's all this information out there. So you can't see the truth. Like, it's, you just have this wave of bullshit coming at you. There's, like, think about the idea of the, the uninterrupted presence of the visible. You know what I mean by that? Like, no matter where you turn, like, here in Hawaii, we're lucky because we don't have billboards. But when I go back to California, there's fucking billboards everywhere. There's like, Boom, look at this on TV. Look at this magazine. Look at this person wearing this flashy thing. That guy's got a Beamer. He's got a Tesla. This guy's telling me how much money he makes. Like, there is just this uninterrupted stream of things competing for your attention. Like, you don't even have time to think. It's almost pornographic in a way because you can't stop, man. It's just, it's on you. And that, to me, is the opposite of transparency while claiming to be transparent. Look, we're showing you everything. No, yet you're showing me so much, but you're not. You're showing me everything but the truth because you don't want me to see it. And so I think that this idea of everything being bombarded on you Whoa. is a way to stop you from seeing clearly, which would be transparency. Does that kind of make sense? Well, it's like Zach De La Rocha, right? Rage Against the Machine, come and play, come and play. Forget about the movement. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, it, you know, it's an idea, but it's like, you know, to me, it's it's these things are not like people are out there just doing what they do, and and if if while doing what they do, they're creating distractions in life for everybody else. You know what I mean? Well, that's everybody else's problem. You know, like we need to figure out, or you need to figure out as a person how to freaking, you know, put all that noise aside and focus in on what it is you need to do, or what it is you want to learn, or how it is you want to see the world. You know, I, you know, it's like. It's like, again, we go back to the sixth grade education people. Yeah. You know, that stuff works on sixth grade education people. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, the election was stolen. You know, that type of shit works on sixth grade education people. You know, people that are unbelievably gullible, like Joe Rogan. You know, like, you know, that, that shit works on him. You know, so it's like, it's like, this is like the point to me, like of the podcast that we're doing here, like use of psychedelics. You know, building a foundation of knowledge and being able to like form your own opinion and, and find your own way with, without being distracted by all the bullshit. Yes. Um, 
I still don't I, think Joe. Go ahead. Go ahead. What you got? Oh, I, I had a, I had a bunch of points in there. Uh, by the way, Joe, I love you. If you ever see this, please invite me on your podcast. <laughs> um, just kidding. Uh, so, I, you know, I think there's a very interesting uh, nuance to this that we haven't really touched on yet, and I think it's who's kind of pulling the strings for what is and what is not transparent, because that's an important part of this equation. Now, if, if, if imagine a, a thought experiment, we're all, we're all sitting in a community together and it's pretty transparent because we all live next to each other. There's no strangers in the community. Everybody can hear everybody shout, you know, that level of transparency between us is going to be, you know, pretty obtuse. You're not going to be able to hide too many things, but you get a bigger and bigger community. And all of a sudden you need to have uh, some authoritative figure who kind of dictates how things run. Now there's incentives for there to be privacy, for there to be shenanigans afoot, you know, and usually it's economic incentives because now we've all decided that we're going to pull our money together to make a better community. And so I think, you know, it's who's pulling those strings and what are the motivations? And I think as long as we are driven through a capitalistic motivations lens in life, you're going to end up in a corrupted state where this is going to be abused and instituted in through surveillance. And I think that's going to happen, you know, because your motivations for why you're doing these things are not the best intentions for the individual, the end users. Your motivations are the best intentions for the system or, you know, yourself as a part of that system as an authority in that system. And I think that corruptive nature of that um, will, no matter kind of what you do from a philosophical, technological perspective, will inevitably corrupt itself because those motivations are aligned with what we're trying to achieve as individuals. Yeah, you know, it's like me and George are talking about, you know, last night a little bit, you know, about people who claim to be leaders of others. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and these people, you know, some of them are morally bankrupt, you oh, know, yeah. and but they Good have chunk. the ability to they have the ability to go out and actually talk to people, you know, right. whether they're, you know, right or wrong or, you know, whether they have, you know, good or bad motives. You know, these people are, have the ability to go out and do what other people, you know, like like smart people who are good people wouldn't do, you know, for a million dollars, you know. Mm -hmm put themselves into places where they're speaking for others, you know, and, and possibly suffering the ramifications, you know, for, for doing so, you know, and, and, you know, when we, when we think about, you know, like you were talking about the, like a community type of, of place, like most of those decisions that people make in a capitalistic world, like, you know, the Joe Blow, the bureaucrat who's sitting there behind some desk, you know, pushing paper all day is out doing it because, they basically want to serve themselves. Yeah. And so when you get a bunch of people together that are, you know, they have a job to do, of course, they're working under the umbrella of a government or a corporation, you know, or a private business, you know, they're, they want attaboys. They want to be told that they're doing a good job. They want to be relevant. They want to have job security. And, and, and the way that they see, you know, to do that is, is by doing what's best for them first. And right. so, what happens is, is you magnify that by like, you know, multi many millions over, you know, uh, across the country and you end up with a situation that isn't so good. You end up in a situation that I don't think that was 
you know, was intended to be bad, but, you know, becomes that way because it's a reflection of people, whether it's, you know, your community that you're building and you, you want to have rules and laws or whatever it is, or, or the business or the government that you work, work for, you can't take selfishness out of the equation. You're never going to be able to do that. I wouldn't say never. I think, you know, a thought experiment, I think if you were to yeah. have a, have a, have a, <laughs> have you know a society that that had a different philosophy that was raised on that philosophy had a different mechanistic way to interact with the world that wasn't purely capitalism i think you might see different results however i would say yes in the sense of what we have options in today's world i don't think you see a change i don't i don't think that changes no i mean i don't think so either you know and so this brings me back to like to like um you know, we were talking about earlier with, you know, with having the memory, you know, of an exhaustive run or a mental workout or whatever it may be. And then your body playing that in reverse, your mind playing that in reverse. So it can learn the things, you know, that might have tripped you up during that run or, you know, something that you passed that smelled funny that, you know, you may want to avoid next time or, you know, things that, you know, you're not always aware of, but your body, you're, you know, like, your body's bringing these things in and then you're taking this time to process, you know, that I believe that, you know, with, through the use of psychedelics, like even at a low level that you can begin to change, you know, people's perspective or how they would perform their duties in the workplace so that the collective, right. Isn't me, 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 you know, I got to serve myself under the umbrella of this, of whatever I'm working under. You know, um, and I'm being I'm this little tiny drop in this giant lake of shit, right? To where you can change it to where people actually change their motives and people are actually viewing the jobs that that they do more holistically, more communally, you know, and and not so individually. And this is another thing that me and George were talking about last night because George is a big you know uh, individual rights guy. Liberty baby, yeah. Listen, okay, so here, I think I, I like what you said, Paul, and here's kind of my rebuttal to that, is the only way, like, it's so, it, it, it's like the biggest egoistic thing, and it's so arrogant to me for when people say, I'm going to, I want the world to be better, I'm going to, I'm going to help change the world, no, you're not, motherfucker, you are not, change, you can't even fucking clean your goddamn room, you're going to change the world, well, hold on. for me, please oh, find better, please define better. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. Please, please define good. Please define evil. Okay. Please define truth. Okay. I am. I yeah. Like, let me give you an example. In today's world, there's all these people that are so worried about what's happening in Ukraine. Like we're spending so like in the United. Let's just talk about the United States. We're, we're split down this thing of like, oh look at what's happening. Putin did this. Gazelinsky did this. Like, listen. Neither you nor I can do nothing about that. Not one thing. Like I don't know anybody there. I'm sorry. If, I love people. I love my community and I love all those people. And I'm sorry things happen there, but that has absolutely zero effect on me or anybody in my community. And if I want to change it, you can, but you change it by changing yourself. You change it by being the best person you can be. And once you do that, then you can begin helping your neighbor, but you don't, you don't start by saying, I'm going to go help this guy in Ukraine. Why? You can't help that guy. You don't even know what he's going through. You don't know him. You don't know why he's fighting. You don't know the rules on the ground. You don't know what happened. But you, what you do know is you can go on Twitter and put a flag on it. Like, I'm going to help. 
No, you're not. You're just you're just virtue signaling. Why right, don't you go is, out and help your yeah, kid? But, yeah, but George, if we had taken that same attitude in the 1940s, we'd all be speaking we Japanese, did. German, or Italian. Well, no, we did, and we we did until we got directly bombed. And if you look at the United States, it takes until they get directly blown up before they're like, okay, now we're actually going to go shoot back. Yeah, but but like you know, the United States government has you know has uh, you know I'm not going to say come out flat out, but has made you know um, statements that suggest that like especially in like Vietnam that that bombing wasn't really, you know, like the Gulf of Tonkin incident wasn't really the Gulf of Tonkin incident. But, well, yeah. but we needed yeah. something in order to go ahead and do this. You know, you need to get, you know, like support for a new war effort. Right. Yeah, that's so, that's a pattern. Back to the back to the very beginning. It is a pattern indeed. Yeah. <laughs> and we have we have these patterns of false flag events to get us instituted into conflict because it but benefits the people who make the weapons. Right. Sure. And the people who make the weapons pay the lobbyists the money to get us to vote to get into those conflicts or to vote to, you know, allow them to send the $60 billion worth of weapons to a foreign country that rewind five years ago was the most corrupt country in the world by the headlines of the media companies today that are, you know, putting up the, the Ukrainian flag. Uh, and it was after, if you look at what happened, there was a coup instituted. Right. And that's where Zelensky got elected. And so, you know, we're we're supporting all these things that from a, a philosophical level of what we would claim are our ideals, we should never support as a as a nation. Uh, yet that's not what really happens. And I think we're starting to wake up to that uh, on, a, on a massive scale because of the ability to share information, because of the ability to have conversations like this. Uh, and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of this kind of unrest. We're seeing the doubling downs from the media channels. We're seeing the massive divisions of trying to get people to hate each other as opposed to look up to see where the problem's actually originating from. I, and I think that this is kind of, we're seeking to answer a question as a society. And the formulation of that question is, is you know, we've done it this way why should we continue to do it that way when it doesn't work for the vast majority of people so what do we do next i want to point out to a very a very perverse point of persuasion that's been happening you know in the news you see all these headlines like and it doesn't matter which channel there's a debate going on it was like did did we blow up the pipeline or did russia blow up the pipeline mm -hmm. Like that's called a false choice. Like that's a logical right. fallacy because neither me, nor Paul, nor Ben, nor anybody I know in the United States of America blew up that pipeline. Thus, no Americans blew up that pipeline. Not one of us, none of us, zero of us. But they get you to say, did was it them or was it us? Them or us. And no matter which one you choose, you're participating in the propaganda and, you, and you're, you're, you're subtly believing. Yeah. It was us. No, I think it was them. I think it was us. Dude, just stop. It was right. neither of you. What you're seeing is a loose conglomeration of multinational corporations and family offices struggling to control the resources and the supply chains for the next hundred years. And it has nothing to do with the people in any country. Zero. These are these are giant multinational, multi-generational, either NGOs or 
you know, family offices or, you know, uh, sovereign wealth funds, but they're working together in conjunction with for a piece of those resources. And the way you get other countries to pay for it is by saying it's either them or us. Okay, yeah. think regardless of what happens now, USA is going to if, – if people say, oh, it was us, meaning the U.S., now all of a sudden we're on the hook for reconstruction for who, who knows how many trillion of dollars. Oh, you guys built the pipeline, so you got to pay for it. No, we didn't. We didn't blow up anything. Why are you taking our money? But the fact that they get you to admit to it in the argument, us or them, means you're already responsible for it. It's like right. a logical fallacy. Well, and it's also manipulation. Yeah, absolutely. It's baseline manipulation because now all of a sudden most people, when presented with a choice like that, can't see beyond the choice. And so, therefore, there only is that choice when that's not the reality of the situation, as you just said very well, without much fat on it at all. I love it. And we're back to the sixth grade education. We're, you know what we're back to? We're Paul, you know what we're back to? We're back to gentleman conversations. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, shit. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it seems like there's. It seems like this is coming to a head. I don't see how this can continue to, you know, and obviously things that are very large take a long time to unravel. Just you know, it's kind of almost a physics problem. But I think this is definitely all coming to a head. I think you know. It, where now we're seeing because there's so much access to information, there's so much ability for us to recognize these patterns and these systems that, that are at play, that now those systems are reverting into emergency mode. They, and in that, in that reversion to emergency mode, they just become propaganda-filled, rhetoric-driven dribble, yeah. right? And I, and, and, Meanwhile, all of us are starting to have conversations. We're starting to we're starting to come around the dinner table. We're starting to break bread. We're starting to we're starting to share ideas, um, which, to your point, is always been frowned upon from the upper echelons down in society. Because usually, when that happens, the upper echelons kind of make a little shift. <laughs> it's the it's the invisible boogeyman. Whether it's communism or whether it's terrorism whether it's a disease, whether it's a plague, or whether it's nuclear war. These are all invisible boogeymen. Like, well, think fear. about how pan – yeah, fear. When, you're, when, you, when you live in a state of fear, you're in flight, fight or flight. You don't think clear. You don't have time to think, and that's part of the process. Like, we're moving faster than we've ever moved before in the world of developing policies and stuff like that. So you must continue to move at that pace. We jump from one cataclysm to the other, but they're all man-made. COVID, nuclear war, terrorism, communism. These are invisible ideas that are given to the people on the bottom. So they shut their mouth, they be scared, and they go hide in their hole. So there was a, a conversation with uh, uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman the other day, and he was talking about the flight or fight. And he kind of re retooled it a little bit, which I thought was just wonderful. And it's not fight or flight. It's the way he said it was, you know, I'm on my heels. I'm retreating. I'm standing my ground or I'm at a forward state of 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 inertia or state of momentum so that would be kind of the fight but then if you think about that you know we we've we have the phrase paralyzed by fear right and i think a lot of people are paralyzed in that middle just standing on their heel standing on 
square feet with nowhere to go and no, and no idea if they should retreat or move forward. And I think that is the most advantageous state to have a human being in if you want to extract value from them. Because they're not running away from you. They're just standing right there. Yeah. And it's and on all levels. Yeah. It's nuclear war. It is a monetary issue. Like, no matter where you turn, like, I've noticed this as someone who goes out and, like, I'll probably have 100 conversations a day when I'm working. You know, I, I, I do at least 150 stops. I probably talk to at least 100 people. And I have noticed this level of animosity, I'll say. Like, people are on edge. People are scared. People are worried about their families. They're worried about their finances. They're worried about all the crap on TV. And it's bombarding us. That This takes me back to this unbelievable barrage of just negative stuff falling on you all day. Like you can't take that without feeling it. You know, it's like if you stand in a group and you had everybody yell at you and tell you all your negative problems, do you get depressed? Cause it's sad and you don't like hearing it. And it, it has an effect on you the same way that television, the same way that talk radio, the same way that coworkers, the same way that bosses, the same way that every interaction you have is talking about something. And no matter what it is, it tends to be negative. Hey, we're going into depression. Hey, we're going to have a nuclear war. Hey, so-and-so died of COVID. Hey, I think that this thing might be man-made. Hey, I think that gay people aren't real people. Hey, I think black people. I think, you know, there's all this just bombardment on people. And it's so you can't think clearly. It's so that you're, like, you're in one of those states Ben's talking about. And in, in a weird way, I almost think that should be celebrated. Because that means these guys are running the full court press and they got nothing left. Yeah, this is it. This is the, all the cards on the table. They're all in. Yeah. And, you know, the perfect, con, the way to combat this is uh, no absolutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great well, point. <laughs> okay, so a lot of those people that you're talking about, George, that are out there afraid, it's, you know, it's because a lot of these have the ability to rationalize any of the information that is, that's being given to them. And right. so they fall right. back to, like, you know, to fear. And there's a lot of fear-based people in this country, let me tell you. Well, that's, yeah. you know, I think I think most people were taught to manipulate people through fear in this country one way or another. I mean, just look at back to our worker bee uh, system in the school. You know, you have to appeal to authority. There is a fear component in that because there is a judgment that's going to be cast right in that. appeal. Right. But they're not resolving. There's And so we're kind of bred into this fear response are you know these mechanisms of, of control that we've been exposed to right so there's rational fears and then there's irrational fears and there's a lot of people in this country that are hung up on irrational fear and so when you like you know when George is out there and I got I, I it, 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 it it makes me shiver George to think about who the hell and where the hell you're delivering packages to <laughs> if there's that many people out there that are like you know that rooted in fear i see it man i see it every day ability to rationalize information to bring information in and process it in a manner that you know that it makes sense and then to understand whether these things should be feared or these things should be mocked and like a lot of the stuff that's going around right now like you know like people talking about all these fears you, know, you see them on the news you hear them on the radio or whatever most of those people need to be mocked yes yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But we have a sincere lack of reason in society, much, much to the, you know, the critical thinking, you know, it really, we're never, I, you know, the, the word reason 
was not a word that I even really encountered in my life until I was on my own path. You know, you know, there was a reason for something, but I was never taught reasoning. I was never taught logical thought, you know, until I started learning computers and then it was just kind of, uh, you know, I had to. Uh, but then that kicked off a whole train of reasoning, you know, of reasoning ability, which I've tried to foster for myself for the past 15 some years. Uh, You've done and, a good job. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it's there is a general lack of, of reasoning ability in the world today. Um, people cannot take two disparate pieces of information, look at them and find some reasonable uh solution mechanism uh even you know definition on to why these two would coexist or potentially seem like they coexist uh, and if you can't do that just imagine the state that you're eventually going to get in because now i don't know 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 and then somebody who uh, i'm supposed to listen to tells me you should be afraid of all those things you don't know holy crap what am i supposed to do the guy who I'm supposed I'm listening to just told me I'm supposed to be afraid. He's saying, I don't know. Oh, oh no. Yeah. And, and I think that's where we're at. I th and, you know, we combine that with the education levels. We combine that with the propaganda systems. We combine that with the, the education control system. We combine that with everything. And this is that King Glamour. This is the, this is the end recipe of that. This is what it turns out. This is the, the cake with the hole in the middle after you pull it out of the damn oven. Yeah, yeah. you know, it goes to like, you know, like there's two types of people. There's people mm -hmm. that use fear to get through their days and there's people that use logic and reason to get through their days. <clears throat> and like, you got to figure out where you are. But but back to what you were saying, Ben, um, you know, like some of these people that are telling that you need to be fearful of the unknown. The scary part is some of those people are actually giving people instructions on how to combat it. Oh, yeah. Well, not not just some of them, a whole lot of them. A whole lot of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fucking wild at the end of the day. I mean, it's, you know, one thing that I like to impart with young people in passing is focus on the things you can change and not on the things you can't. You know, that's one of the, that's a foundational step of reasoning that most people don't even have, uh, you know, especially at an emotional level these days, I've noticed. You know, um, but let alone in reflection of what's happening on a, on a global scale, right? Right. So we we touched on this a few weeks ago when I, you know, was I was I brought up to the panelists that I was probably four weeks ago or something about, you know, about we all here that participate in this Sunday chat, you know, um, have taken personal time, right? Because we certainly didn't get the education that we have, or at least a lot of it, you know, sitting at some public education school, you know, so, you know, whether it's through travel, you know, association with different types of people, um, you know, reading, um, I mean, you know, participation in arts and culture and stuff like that, you know, have developed a foundation of knowledge. Right. And so like, you know, what would Ben, what would you suggest to people, you know, like somebody who's listening to this podcast right now, who's like, hey, you know, like some of the things these guys are saying are, make sense. And I would like to live my life with less fear. You know, what would you suggest people to do, you know, um, in order to be able to further educate themselves, have a better understanding of the challenges that are presented to them every single day and to understand, 
you know, when people are not being truthful, whether it's within government or media or, you know, within like even the relationships that they have. Absolutely. Um, my first answer will be entirely self uh, selfish. Uh, there was a guy who wrote a book back here called No Absolutes. Uh, and, you know, jokingly aside, it is a, it is a foundation, a framework to on how to view the world to facilitate exactly what you asked. Um, however, to remove myself from the equation entirely, if somebody wanted to just start, I would highly recommend go research the Hermetic Principles. Um, and you can type in Hermetic Principles. There's the Kabbalion, which is a great introduction to that. Um, these are old school things that uh, have some very foundational and fundamental applications to the real world. Uh, reasoning, ability to put things into a perspective and to see the world from a different point of view. That's where I would start. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. What about what about you, George? I would say yeah. do. Would I would you, say. Do you have a friend I would of yours give you the books, the Illuminatus trilogy by Robert Anton Wilson, and tell him to start there. <laughs> it's a great book, man. You know, I. <laughs> I'll tell you this, conspiracies get you to ask questions. They may not be the questions that you or I would ask. They might be the ones that I would ask, but I think it's I think it begins the pathway of question asking. And I, I think that that is something I would tell people to do is is first off, do do one thing every day that scares you. It doesn't have to be crazy. But maybe say something that you would normally say. Maybe tell somebody something that you wouldn't normally say. Do one thing every day that scares you. Like, you know, just try that. And then try asking yourself, you know, I got a, on my, on my arm, I got a tattoo of Socrates because it, it forces me to ask the question, is that true? And I, I always tell my daughter, like, ask that question. Whenever somebody says something, just in your mind, ask the question, is that true? And if it is true, then you're gonna then you then you have a series of responses that you can give. But if it's not true, you don't even have to give a response because it's not true. You don't have to worry about it. But it's a great way for you to find out your truth. It's a good way for you to seek truth. It's a good way for you to begin the idea of investigating the life around you, your environment. Is that true? I don't know if it's true. I better ask some more questions. Is that true? I don't know. I'm gonna go read a book. Is that true? No, that's not true. Well, then let's we can have a debate. But, you know, I think that asking questions, is that true? And doing one thing every day that scares you are a great way for you to begin to thoroughly understand who you are and the environment in which you live. They're the things that I do. So can I, I, I know I didn't hear yeah, you most of your answer. Oh, yeah. can I, well, can I jump ahead. in there? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, so truth is a is a funny word, right? Right. So what's true for me might not necessarily be true for you. I think that's a great foundational place to begin from. Can we agree that there are truths, though? Mm, like, I don't think so. You don't think so? Mm -mm. Like, is it true that we see the sky as being blue? Not everybody. There's there's. Mm people who, uh, you know, they see millions of different colors. Their perception of blue is entirely different than what yours is. There's people okay, who is don't it true see blue that, at all. Is it true that, you know, blue whales are the largest living creatures, you know, animals on earth? 
not necessarily can, either. I, I can help out. <laughs> How about this? Ever. What I'm saying is, it's like, you know, there has to be some sort of accepted, you know, um, truth. relative truths. Relative truths. Right? And so, like, I don't think conspiracy theory is the place to begin to like asking like the no, question, no, 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 why? no, 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 I, I wasn't know, saying well, conspiracy theory. I wasn't well, saying I conspiracy what, theory. Yeah, I think that was what George was suggesting, you know, when you mentioned <laughs> conspiracy you. theory. And I've always said like conspiracy theory is intellectualism for dipshits. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great line. It's a great line. Because, <laughs> you know, it, it's not rooted in fact or truth. It's it rooted in, you know, theory. Well, and so well, anybody can go out. Anybody can go out. And conspiracy theories. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you guys something. Man. Right. Break it down. So, I'm gonna break it down. So conspiracy theories make people who aren't so smart feel smart because they they can have what seemingly what they feel to be hidden knowledge. You know, intellectual con. Yeah, intellectual conversations that are not rooted in fact or truth. And so as long as you are not too absurd, but yet absurd enough, you can be taken seriously in some of these circles, right? And that makes people sure. feel good. It makes people feel like, hey, I know something. It's the same thing. Like if you watch Fox News and you listen to like Tucker Carlson or freaking Laura Ingraham or any one of those wackos on there, they don't ever name people. It's rare. You know, they always, they always say them or those people or they, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Because they know that their viewers. Convenient. Yeah. Yeah. They know that their viewers are going to fill in those, those, them or they's with, you know, with the homosexuals or immigrants or muslims or democrats you know what mm -hmm. i mean and so they it allows people to also then view you know these conspiracy type people as like hey like i'm on the same level as these guys i know who they're talking about i know you know what's going on here and in my echo chamber chamber circle of friends and family who also believe a lot of this ridiculousness you know we feel like we are the intellectuals it's the same thing when ronnie chang's like you got d minus students out there with podcasts demanding you know, peer-reviewed scientific information in order to like take a vaccine or not. You know, right? You said the right word, echo chamber. Yeah, You said the right word, echo chamber. Actually, qualified to be like having intellectual discussion. They could be, but you know, typically they're from state where education is really poor. Now, I, I, I would I would push back just a little bit. I think there is a slightly other perspective to view that from too. Is that you know, conspiracy as a word was a very um, a very real thing up until, you know, it was attached to conspiracy theory in modern times. You know, conspiracy is that people are working behind closed doors to, you know, come up with some sort of plot or end goal that they're not being truthful or transparent, back to our conversation earlier, to the people that they're supposed to be supporting in this endeavor. Um, True. And there is still a lot of conspiracy. And there is, you know, I think there is a value in promoting conspiracy theory from somebody who's trying to hide something. Because now if I can, if, if now I have this whole group of people who are conspiracy theorists, it's just like me saying, Hey, look, it's them. You know, it's those people. And now I can distract and, you know, and we have through freedom of information act, you know, we have things false flag, stuff that we've done so it's not all conspiracy theory some of it is you know conspiratorial and it was proven so it, well there's yeah yeah no i mean the you know the the thing is it's like it's you know it's been my like you know um experience with like conspiracy theorists like the people who are actually putting out the well, i know what you're talking about yeah 
yeah, yeah, I mean, like the flatter so, shit, right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. one right there, you know, like, or like, whatever, what's the new one, like the furries and the cat boxes and shit that oh, are in elevation, you know, like, you know, the stuff that's just like so crazy, you know, it's like, come on, really, you know, you're gonna believe that kind of shit, you know, I'm not only saying like in the history of public schools that it's never happened, you know, but sure, it's, it probably has, you know, but, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not any sort of thing that anybody should be alarmed about. It's not even happening, you know? Um, well, and that's the thing that brings us back to the fear and the patterns, right? I mean, this is, this is very, uh, a very consistent conversation if we, if we pull ourselves back a little bit. I think right. slander becomes the tool of the loser when the debate is lost. The minute you start labeling people, this person is this, this person's a conspiracy theorist, this person is a Muslim. Like as soon as you start saying, as soon as you start attacking their character, when you start saying something like, like that's kind of slanderous, just to, just to, it's a real easy way to end a debate. You're this, see ya. Really? That's yeah, an ad hominem. If, yeah. You know? So if, if someone, if, you know, if someone has an idea that's silly, it's really easy to beat them. It's really easy to point out the flaws in their argument. A lot of times people have at least some foundation for ideas and they're not allowed to talk about them. Like if you look at the censorship that's throughout social media, there's a lot of things that are censored that are not conspiracy theories, but they're labeled as conspiracy theories just to go ahead and diminish them, just to put them in a category. If you think about that as a technique, like that is a, it's, it's abhorrent. Like when you, when you take away someone's ability to speak truth, like that, that is bad for everyone because the ways people's minds are changed is through a solid debate. People can make up their own mind. Even the D student, even that guy that sat in the back of class that you think is a dummy, like that guy probably is pretty smart in some ways that were just not ways he could do listening to somebody preach about their, their ideas of English. Like, I know plenty of people that are, I, I once heard a, a good quote that said A and B students make the best managers because they do what they're told. And if you look at some of the colleges, like look at doctors, doctors go to school for like 25 years or 30 years. By the time they get out, they're probably really good at some of the things they do, but they're retarded in ways. Not, I don't mean that as an, as a pejorative, but their, their growth in the social world has been retarded because they've been in this echo chamber for 25 or 30 years. Versus someone who's been out on the ground learning, taking beatings, learning their way through life. They have much more of a social understanding of the world. And so I, I think that we should be careful about just dismissing people as anything. In fact, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if here, – here's something I tried to do during the COVID, the, the whole COVID thing that went on. Like there was a lot of terms of conspiracy theory being thrown out. This person thinks this, they're conspiracy. But the truth is like – there's a lot of money being made in this whole mess. And I don't know who the winner is and I don't know who the loser is, but I can tell you this, you know, just taking a look at history, what, you know, the, the best predictor of future behavior is past relevant behavior. And if you look at the past behavior of pharmaceutical companies, I can tell you they don't have the best interest of people in mind. And if we can, we can, if we can all agree on that, then we must also agree that, there's a very good chance that they don't have the best interest of people's health in mind now. And like, that's a, that's a fact. That's not a conspiracy theorist. And I have well, never seen so many people jump on board. Like, listen, we all got to do this. Like, wait, what about all these horrible things that had happened six months ago? What about that? We're not talking about that. In fact, shut up. You're a conspiracy theorist. Get out of here. 
Like that is an well, incredible problem. It turns in it, it turns into a term to slander people, like you said. Yeah, you know, exactly. it, it turns it, you know, it, and it, it, another one that's getting thrown around these days is a racist, a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we have all these terms that we're placing people in these little boxes. And if I can yeah. call them that and the people who listen to me because they are appealing to authority because they don't have that reasoning ability, they're going to do the same thing. And that is essentially what our, our media on both sides of the fence is doing right now is they are using that appeal to authority to deride, derive, and dismiss anybody who runs counter to their bottom profit line. Paul, can you, last night you were telling me, I, I had asked Paul last night for everybody listening, like, you know, we were talking about public shaming and I'm like, you know, I, I don't understand why we don't bring that back. And Paul had a great answer that kind of put me on my heels a little bit. Can you share that answer, Paul, with everybody? Well, I mean, I think you were talking about public shaming and like, and like, you know, as being a, you know, like a sentencing for committing a crime. Yes, I was. Know? And yes. so, like, I don't think that the government should be involved in shaming people. Because know? it's cruel and unusual punishment, it's right? cruel and unusual punishment, right. And so, um, you know, but that doesn't mean, like, you know, people aren't going to go out there and, you know, commit crimes and do the time and come out and then, you know, be shamed by their family or peers or other members of their community or on social media or whatever. That shit happens. But you know, I and mean, there's we're really supposed to be a, yeah. but we're supposed to be, you know, as a country, like, you know, yeah. and, and as a United States government, like, you know, we should be holding ourselves to a higher standard. But we seem to be like really like drifting backwards, you know, where we're like some of these what I would consider to be, you know, barbaric types of, um, you know, consequences for people, whether it's in this country or in others and the way that we deal with people around the globe. And, um, you know, um, I find it to be like, you know, it's off-putting, you know, we, we should be holding ourselves to a higher standard. And, you know, so therefore, I mean, you know, public shaming of people, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't believe in the death penalty, you know, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think government should be into retribution as well. Yeah. I, I think, you know, once upon a time when this country was first founded, there were some pretty clear lines defining, you know, government and people. And those lines have been blurred dramatically. Oh, right? yes. Uh, and to the point where, you know, now you can't go a single day without a single politician publicly shaming another politician, policy, uh, you know, agency, uh, private institution, uh, or even a private citizen. Uh, and I think, I, I think to your point, there is something lost there, but I don't know that having that centralized power, I don't think that there's any other outcome to it. Because, because what happens is, is, you know, not only are we taught to appeal to authority, but now we are relinquishing authority to authority. And that has been a generational thing to the point where, you know, the rights of the past are certainly not the rights of today. Uh, and, you know, the ability for the government to dictate, you know, just look at a mask mandate, for instance. Um, you know, that's a wild thing. Especially when you consider that the information that was being acted upon was very much amorphous and was changing constantly. Uh, and, you know, 
other factors and all sorts of different things conflating the situation. But now we end up in a situation where everybody, because they were taught to appeal to authority, is now, well, I don't like your authority. I'm going to appeal to the higher authority. I'm going to appeal to the higher authority. And eventually that highest authority is a president of the United States who, well, I don't think anybody says they've been great <laughs> recently. I mean, you know, you get some you get some sycophants on on all sides, but I don't think how objectively. <sighs> boy, uh, how far back do you want to go? Well, by Kennedy. I don't even think Kennedy was great. <laughs> oh, <sure. laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I, how far back do you want to go? I I, I think once we've. Once we've been into the 1900s, you're looking at a, a, a diminishing returns. And I think before that, it was so much conflict of trying to figure out the place in the world that, you know, depending regionally where you are, you might have a very different perspective on that. Um, you, you think the problem is consolidating authority? I, I, and, and, the, and the blanket... The blanket um, education of uh, to appeal to authority i we we do not have conflict resolution at any level besides oh we're gonna we're gonna call somebody in charge it's gonna be the cops it's gonna be a judge it's gonna be a senator it's gonna be somebody like this there's no there's no hey we we actually sat down at a table we talked about it for a few hours we had a couple drinks george slapped me we're all good we figured it out you know, but that was, I mean, and back to what we were talking about kids earlier, you know, as kids, that's what, that's what kind of happens. If we're allowed to fight as kids, all of a sudden I go punch Billy, Billy punches me back. And the teacher doesn't break it up because we're not around an authority. We're not around a teacher. There's nobody to go cry to. There's nobody to go run to. We settle, we settle the score. All of a sudden he's my best friend because we settled the score we settled our differences we were able to bring ourselves to the to the conversation to the table of conversation now that doesn't always requiring require punching somebody in the face obviously all three of us are sitting here i haven't punched either of you and i haven't been punched by you guys so however i think by and large that that aspect of community has been completely eradicated from our day-to-day -day lives yeah, but, you know, I mean, it's not always the outcome between two kids punching each other in the face, though, George. No, it's not. No, it's not. But at the same time, the outcome might be they don't hang out anymore. The conflict resolves itself in some way. Now, it, that's not always the case either. Sometimes because of bad situations and bad advice, those conflicts escalate. And that's why we typically in society do have the appeal to authority. There is somebody to call to mediate, right? Um, but that used to be the adage of it takes a village to raise a child. Now, all of a sudden, it takes uh, a, a police officer, a school, a resource officer, a principal, uh, you know, and all this other shit. Counselor. Counselor. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I remember when I was young, I watched the Brady Bunch. And uh, there was this one episode where Cindy went to school and this kid was like, baby talk, baby talk. Because Cindy had like a little lisp. Yeah. And he, this, this kid was always messing with Cindy, like, baby, talk. she start crying. She comes home and she tells her dad, dad, this kid won't stop. And dad grabs Bobby, like the little kid. Bobby, come over here. You don't know how to fight. This kid is making fun of your sister. So next time when you go there, you're going to tell him to knock it off. If he doesn't knock it off, 
you're going to tell him there's going to be consequences. And then if he doesn't do that, you're going to fight him. And so like this whole episode is like, Bobby goes there and then like the kid punches Bobby. Dad's like, what? Okay. So the, so Michael's out there like showing Bobby how to box. And then like the last, like the last part of the episode, Bobby goes there and the kid's like, baby talk, baby talk. And Bobby's like, what? Don't talk to my sister like that. He's like, what are you going to do? You big baby. Boom. Bobby's punching him right in the face and knocks out his tooth. End of game. End of, end of like, like what happened to that sort of programming? Like that's such a way better programming than like, oh my well, God, I'm going to run. Well, what happened? Cry. What happened with that program is that, like I said, it doesn't always end that way. Some kids get it punched doesn't. and then, like, you know, end up paralyzed or they fall down and hit their head and then they, they can never think the same way again. Or, you know, heaven forbid, you know, some kids have actually been killed from fist fights with other kids. Sure. And, and this is so, where policy comes from. And this is where you know, regulation so, comes from. You know, from. that's the reason why we just don't turn kids loose like this. You know, we're not, you know, it's like, it's not Vikings. Yeah. And at the, so I think we missed we miss the point, but somewhere along the transition, because the point is we don't want to encourage kids to go hit kids. That's not the point. The point is to figure out how to resolve the conflict right now. Violence is a pretty effective solver of situations, probably a good majority of the time. But if we were to actually have a system that wasn't indoctrinating people to be workers but yet was effectively teaching them how to manage emotions how to speak their mind how to communicate how to articulate themselves how to respond when they feel a certain way now all of a sudden that conflict resolution doesn't have to be billy go punching george in the face it can be you know it, it can be a mediation of words and yeah sometimes those are going to escalate still you know, even then, but this is all a process that should be the foundational aspect of how we handle these things. It shouldn't be the appeal to authority because the appeal to authority that the give everybody a trophy, even if they were last place bullshit. This is what you end up in a situation where now there's no personal responsibility to the situation. There's no personal authority either because I'm not myself. I'm a part of a system. I'm a part of a tribe. I'm a part of a group. I'm a part of a school. I'm a part of a society. I'm a part of a culture. All of these things detach you from yourself and us being able to resolve our conflicts at a personal level. I think the loss of, you know, a personal responsibility on top of the disintegration of community is the root problem for many of these things that we see and are talking about. And I think, you know, we, we went from this way and we went this way and we missed the balance in the middle. Yeah. And I think another problem is we have people in this country who are hearkening back to leave it to Beaver and <laughs> the Brady Bunch and, and, you know, and Mayberry as like a better way of life. You know, right. that's it, also a problem. It is. It is. You know, uh, I, what's the definition of idiocy is repeating the same thing over and expecting different results. Right. <laughs> Sorry, George. <laughs> no, it, it's okay. It no, takes... but there's a point there, right? Because we need to identify what was missed on that process. Because clearly we're at the end of the process that is not functional at a large scale. So we missed something along that path. And we need to be able to identify where we came from to know where we, where we ended up and to figure out where we want to go. Yeah, and I, I, I think that when people look back to Leave it to Beaver or the Brady Bunch, like I do sometimes, like 
I didn't grow up in the 50s, but, you know, I look back to a time when it seemed that people cared about each other more. And I don't know if that's true, but when I look back at those, that's what I think about. So it's not that I want to go back to a time of like black and white TV and racism and all this stuff. But in my mind, I look back at a time when things were when people treated each other better. And like I said, that might not be true, but in my mind, that's what I see. So that's what I want things to be back at. And it's in some level, when you talk about going back to something, I know you can't go back to things, but you can go back to the spot you were before you went off the rails. And I think that's that like, that's kind of the metaphor people are talking about when they like, when they look at things, you got to remember each individual is like their own story. Each individual is living their own life. And so when they talk about going back to an area, they're talking about going back to a spot in which maybe they went off the rails. And I, I, don't, I don't think it's fair to say all these people want to go back to this time when there was all these horrible things, because that's not what people want. People don't want to go back to a time when things were horrible. People want to go back to a time they when they made take, sense. Well, you know, they, and, want to, they want to take the things that make sense out of that time, because now nothing makes sense. So, yeah, so the natural that. so the natural response when nothing makes sense is to revert back to the last time that something made sense. If I'm walking down a trail and all of a sudden I feel lost, what am I going to do? I'm not just going to keep wandering down the trail. I'm going to turn around, backtrack my steps to figure out where I lost the trail. It's it's a natural response that's kind of geared towards the exploration aspect of humanity, right? And oh, yeah. I. I so I don't think it's actually, you know, people wanting to go back. I think it's, again, a lack of education, a lack of knowledge, a lack of ability to articulate these things. They want to go back on the trail where things made sense, where they knew where the trail was so they can take their next step forward instead of wandering around in the desert. Well, I, Maybe think, I think for progress, there has to be chaos at some point, whether it's individually uh -huh. or That's or a good statement. Hold on. That's a good statement. For progress, there has to be chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think, you know, when, whether it's like how we are living our lives, because we all been through like chaotic or, you know, like points of our lives when we weren't functioning properly. But I think that's where growth occurs. You know, and I think it's those challenges, whether as a society or as an individual, you know, that it's not about going back. It's about continuing to go forward and, and making your way through either troublesome periods or chaotic periods in your life. So when you come out the other end, you're smarter, you're wiser, you're more nimble, you're better. Well, that's, well, that's the hope, right? But that's the hope of somebody who can reason through the world, that, who, can, who can attach a system of logic to what's happening internally to them and externally to them. And like we were talking about, I think that is devoid of many people right now. I think it's, I, I would, I don't know if I would use chaos. I would say struggle. Because I think when you struggle is when you grow. I think chaos is a situation in which there is, there is nowhere to go. When there's I think no of hope. something, yeah, there, there's nothing there. So you lose all hope when there's chaos. Well, you don't know anything. From a physics definition of chaos, chaos is just the, the lack of order, right? Okay. Okay. Well, then that definition that I like that, I, you know, I, Maybe, okay, maybe this, maybe what we're going through right now is that chaos. Maybe all these things that are happening, maybe this dissolution of government, this, I, all these social norms that have been broken, 
all these different groups breaking out. Maybe this is the very chaos we need in order to move forward. Maybe this is the fuel that's going to present the fire that we need to get us to the next level. Well, it is. It got all of us out of our asses and talking together. <laughs> I think it's like, you know, um, should I just have the word in my mouth, but now I can't remember it. Um, I hate when that <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, guys. No problem. Bro. You know, and, and sometimes I think when we talk about going back, like we use the metaphor of time, like we're going back, but maybe back doesn't mean time. Maybe back means like a pendulum, like it's swinging back and forth, not necessarily back in time. Maybe it's just going back and forth. Well, so I would think this kind of brings us into structures of things. Okay. A systems guy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you could say the pendulum sways back and forth. We can say we're going back in time, right? But if we look at it from kind of, uh, say, like a platonic solids, right? So, mm. so we got a cube of things, and this is our existence. This is our reality. You're not necessarily moving back. You're moving within the system. As long as you don't move without the bound, outside of the bounds of the system, then that would be moving back. But our system is something that's it's very amorphous. It's not a solid structure, right? It's all it's all of this it's all this chaos that we define order from. Uh, and so I think, you know, there is it's not necessarily moving back. It's moving within the system to try to uh, you know uh, plot our next step. Uh, it becomes more of a three dimensional problem than a two dimensional well yeah where you can reach back maybe you reach back instead of going back but you can reach back and apply that to the thing go and then push it forward and, and, you know that would be as above so below neuroplasticity right <laughs> well know? i mean it's what, we, it's what we do as people anyways when we're confronted with you know situations that we're not comfortable with or you know or we're presented with the unknown is that we move into our a familiar framework Right. We go back to things that we understand and know to help us move forward through this unknown period. This brings us and, right back to McKenna. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no. Let's hear about McKenna, George. I love the guy. Okay. <laughs> this brings us back to McKenna, his, his idea of the archaic revival. You know, when societies get stuck, they go back to the last place it was before they got stuck. The same thing happened in the Renaissance, right? Like they got stuck and then they... They rebooted all the ideas of the, the philosophers. And so in a way, what you can see right now is this rebooting of a sort of tribalism. Like, look at the way shamanism is here. Look at the way ayahuasca is coming in. Look at the way these retreats are coming in. Look at this. This is sort of a throwback to archaic ways. We're seeing the, the absence of monotheism and the reintroduction of like a pantheism. There's all these gods now. There's churches coming up where you can go and worship Baba Ganoush or whatever it is you want to, the spaghetti monster, whatever. But there's there's this reintroduction to a time. And I think that this fits Ben's helical model. Like it, it's maybe it's not going back, but it's just reintroducing some of the old ways into the newer system. It's like building a second story on this new platform. Hey, let's take some of this stuff, this old architecture and put it up here now. And we're we're building this new way. And so in above, a way, it's an archaic revival. Does that make sense? And as above, so below, if we look at just the archaeology of the world, right, this is Arch. exactly what happens, right? This is this is the arc of things. This is, you know, we're, we build on layers and layers and layers. If you dig down, there's just 
more layers of stuff that we we tried to do didn't exactly work out so we built on top of it we you know we we took a little from this we took a little from that and then this is our new iteration and right. you know iteration is a wonderful word for this you know we are we are in a new iteration of society uh, you know and, and yeah. I'll take, like not that i think about it too if you look at the the end of nation states and this new emergence of city states a city state kind of seems like you know the like greek not a, throwback well, we, or, or like a giant tribe, a giant tribe, like the, the Cherokees or the Nation of Islam. You know, it's not it doesn't really have a place, but it has a place, and like that's the same. Like that, that's an archaic revival too. It's a, it's an archaic revival of old social structures being tried anew because the last structure has fallen down, and so well, you're hearkening back. Yeah, but it's not just hearkening back. It's hearkening back in conjunction with, forward. with what we've done to plan the next step forward. It's saying, hey, guys, apparently we left a brick out of the foundation over here. Maybe we should go back and figure out how to build a fucking foundation before we actually go off and build a house on top of it. The What was the, the Tower of Babel? Mm. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I, like maybe there's something to be said when we reach a point where we've, we've gotten to a point where we're too big and the foundation can't hold. So everything comes crashing down. You know, right, we have all these people. Yeah. An improper foundation built on, yeah. you know, improper land or what have you. I mean, there, there's a variety of variables there. And, you know, interesting to to note as well that our friends in in the far east in india in, in the hindu text you know they relate this to the yuga cycle right so you know it's not that it's unbeknownst to us through antiquity it just so happens that we just we think we're always more smart than we were before and we don't pay attention so much yeah i, I think we, we're I mean, the fall of man, like we're constantly losing ground, even though we believe we're moving forward. Like we're constantly forgetting all the lessons we've learned in the past. We're constantly learning. We're constantly, even in today's world of technology, like we're moving forward, but we're losing. For every technological skill that we gain, we lose at least one. You know, we forget, like you were talking earlier about the languages that your parents work for this company and there's all these coding languages they don't know. So they've lost that. And like that, that's happened in your lifetime, in your parents' lifetime. And that particular process seems to be accelerating. So the more quicker we give ourselves to the world of technology, the quicker we, we get away from the very things that got us to where we are. And like that, that seems to be like this giant fall of man that we can't get away from. I don't know that it's that. Yeah. I really don't know that it's that. Why not? Because, <laughs> because for instance, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation without that, that movement of technology. And this, you know, obviously this isn't going to uh, change nations and, and foundation the future, but just imagine that it did, right? Well, a thought experiment. Just imagine this conversation kicked off a, a, a cascade of events that you know it was hearkened back to uh in order for us to have this conversation we had to go through those evolutional steps of technology of society of culture of humanity and 
without that, we wouldn't be able to take that next step. Now, that's not to say just like every step is not a forward step in what we do. And sometimes we do have to backtrack on that trail of things, right? Uh, but without that forward momentum, without that innate explorative nature of humanity, we would not be in this situation to create that next iteration of things. So I think there is, there's, there's some component that's necessary and mm. there is, and I think part of that necessity is the forgetting of pieces mm. of the past. Just like we don't want Billy to go beat the shit out of George. We want to give him a better idea of why he doesn't need to beat the shit out of George and he can resolve that conflict a different way. That's well put. So, so you're saying, I should, I should not say, so you're saying, it. but it <laughs> seems to me that what I'm hearing is that the process of forgetting is a necessity. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, we have to forget in order to learn what's coming. Right. Well, there's only so much, and there's a, there's a technical term for this, right? We call it bandwidth. Right? Yeah. There's only so much throughput that can happen. There's only so much bandwidth that, that we have accessible to us on an individual level, on a communal level, on a societal level. And that bandwidth by necessity has to forget certain pieces of information for us, for it to continue forward. But so if we play that through like a hundred years, then pretty much everything we're learning now is going to be forgotten. Well, but it's also going to be, it's going to be different. If you were to rewind a hundred years and ask them to describe the world from 1922 to 2022, mm -hmm. and we have examples of that, right? Uh, we can see where, where that, that stretch of human imagination kind of falls off, but then we can also see where the evolution mm. of technology picks up and the forgetting of, of pieces that were archaic, that held up that, that, um, that ability to imagine the future were. I like that, 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 that kind of brings about a, a beautiful idea of, of, I don't want to say luck, but it brings about this beautiful idea of growth because every it kind of demonstrates that no matter who you are, you play just as big a role as everybody else. You know, right? And I, I think, think I, I think we can really ascribe that to as above, so below as well, right? And uh, internal, externally, you know, that can be the individual experience as much as it is the communal or societal experience. Yeah, yeah, I, I like it. I. I wonder, yeah, I like it. What do you think, Paul? What's your take on that? Man. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's something that I really haven't given a whole lot, hell of a lot of thought about, you know? Um, I mean, we, there, there are definitely clear examples of, of, you know, past technologies, archaic things that, you know, are no longer relative. I mean, even from even from like 10 years ago, five years ago, you know, so, you know, we continue to move in a direction, you know, that, you know, we're, we're bringing new things in and moving things, old things out all the time. You know, what, what does that do to society? You know, where, where do we go? I mean, I, I don't know. And so this kind of brings us back to, to retreats and those, those very ferrymen and bridge keepers, right? Because then that that's what gives value to those those individuals, those 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 groups of people. 
because and we're seeing it today you know there's you can't scroll down facebook without seeing like the survival uh handbook how to build a hundred different things to survive or you know what to grow or how to how to make all these old timey foods and all of this stuff how to live off the land you know so I, 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 I think there's a lot of evidence that we can kind of correlate to this whole imagery that we're building here. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Gentlemen, are coming up on the two-hour mark. Oh. Got to tell you, man. I know. <laughs> it, it goes by pretty quick, man. I, I got to tell you, I really enjoy the conversations, and I enjoy getting to listen to you guys and challenge ideas and have mine challenged, and I, I feel like I come out the other side – feeling pretty good about myself so thank you for that yeah. likewise yeah. gentlemen i yeah. i really much agree uh you know the exploration of ideas is not something to be discounted uh and to have the ability to consistently from uh from a perspective of you know relative acceptance we're all kind of dicks in our own way right <laughs> um but from relative acceptance to be able to be heard to to articulate our ideas and have somebody actually think about them and actually put them into some sort of perspective i it's wonderful so thank you very much george for hosting this damn thing yeah man i'm, I'm happy to do it and uh so so Ben, why don't you tell people what you got going on, what you got coming up, and what you're excited about? All right. Uh, well, BenjaminCGeorge.com, the No Absolutes podcast is off and rolling. Uh, we're every week's going to be multiple live sessions, hopefully growing. Uh, more stuff will be coming from that. I got a timeline that I'm building for my websites that's taking anthropology, geology, uh, some little astrotheology and a couple other things and putting them into some sort of rough draft of, you know, where humanity came from to maybe identify where we want to be going. Yeah. I heard a rumor that Paul might be coming on your podcast pretty soon. I don't know, Paul, you coming on my podcast? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, hell yeah, brother. Let's do it next week. Sounds good. All Let right. me know. And now Paul, Paul's favorite part of the podcast is giving his information about what he's got going on. Paul? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a website. You can't really anywhere. You know, I'm here on Sundays with uh, true life podcast. Epic. I, you heard, that's the Sunday. You. That's not the Sunday stig for anybody who's listening. That's right. <laughs> yeah, not to be so confused with the Thursday stig coming up. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good thing you got going on here, George. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, share some of my wackiness with uh, other people. Not and, wacky at all, brother. And it's a little bit wacky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I was trying to be nice. Come on, we're, we're closing up here, folks. Come on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It's 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 good, and I, you know, I hope people that are listening to this, you know, find value in some of the things that we're saying. You know, that's kind of my hope. Well, and I, I think you said it yesterday too. Like, you know, I, I think that every one of us on this show is bringing a lot of value. And I think we all come from different backgrounds. And it's odd that we've all had some similar experiences. And I, I, I really there think no that that's what provides. It's not odd. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and, <laughs> but I love it. I love that all three of us can be like, yeah, kind of, no. But I really think that that is what people can take away. And ultimately, that's. That's what we want is for people to take away 
at least something from this podcast that they can apply to their life. And maybe they, maybe they agree with one of us, or maybe they disagree with all of us, but maybe they can find value in us trying to work it out. Yeah, that's, 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 I'd agree. That's, I hope that's what they're getting. Yeah, me too. I feel there's untold value in a fantastic conversation. (laughs) Okay. We'll leave it right there. That's beautiful. (laughs) Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. We'll see you next Sunday. Aloha. taking a moment to hang out with me in the true life podcast i truly appreciate it if you're taking some time to listen to this whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way i truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart additionally i would like to try to inspire everyone 
the world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true, but you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.